Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Tonight on The Readout. Beginning with the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York. He's one of maybe a dozen or more across the country that get elected on an ideological agenda, usually with funding from people like George Soros. The hypocrisy and extra loud dog whistling by Republicans. What it really means when they call Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg and others Soros backed. Also tonight, the state of confusion that Republicans have created for American women and what the fight over abortion pills is really about. Complete federal control over women's reproductive health. Plus, we're learning a lot of very interesting things about Cameron Sexton, the Tennessee House Speaker who subjected his state to national ridicule over the expulsion of two young black legislators, including reporting that he might not even live in the district he represents. But we begin tonight with the current state of chaos and confusion for women across the country, spurred by a single judge's decision to invalidate the FDA's 23-year-old approval of one of the principal drugs used for abortions, Mifepristone. We're still waiting to hear what the Fifth Circuit Court says about the Justice Department's appeal. But as of right now, there are three major deadlines that we're following. By midnight tonight, the anti-abortion group that brought the Texas lawsuit must respond to the stay request from the Justice Department. By Friday, the DOJ has asked Washington State Judge Thomas Rice to provide clarification about his ruling, contradicting Judge Matthew Kazmarek's, Kazmarek's ordering the FDA not to disrupt the availability of Mifepristone. And by Saturday morning, Judge Kazmarek's order is set to go into effect, barring action by another court. And while banning this pill won't actually make medication abortions go away, the ramifications of these decisions are already having a turbulent effect as states and clinics scramble to figure out what's next. Reporting shows that some clinics are already calling patients who expected to get medication abortions next week, telling them to change their plans. Some blue states, including Washington, are stockpiling mifepristone pills, Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey said her state had ordered about 15,000 doses of the drug and issued an executive order that would help protect access to medication abortions and shield providers who performed them. This political intervention into basic medical care hurts women at what can be a difficult and heartbreaking time, putting those experiencing pregnancy loss through greater discomfort, greater pain, and in some cases, threatening their lives. It harms patients, undermines medical expertise, and takes away freedom. Abortion will remain safe, legal, and accessible here in Massachusetts. Other states like California and New York are stocking up on misoprostol, the other drug that's used in combination with mifepristone to induce abortions. Medical experts say that using that pill on its own is still very safe, 
but may be somewhat less effective than the two-drug regimen. There are also some lawmakers who are urging the FDA to just ignore the ruling altogether. I believe that the Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling. I think that we, you know, the courts have the legitimacy and they rely on the legitimacy of their rulings. And what they are currently doing is engaged in an unprecedented and dramatic erosion of the legitimacy of the court. Even drug companies are speaking out. More than 200 biopharma groups led by Pfizer have signed an open letter slamming the Texas decision. And while all of this is happening, Republican lawmakers in red states are actually pushing to take it even further by seeking to revive the Comstock Act as a way to block the mailing of mifepristone from state to state, an idea Judge Kazmarek pushes heavily in his ruling. The Comstock Act was passed in 1873 to prohibit the mailing of contraceptives, lewd writings, and any instrument, substance, drug, medicine, or thing that could be used in an abortion. So much for leaving it up to the states. And you did hear me say contraceptives, because yes, there are other Republican-led states that have already set their sights on birth control. While in Iowa, the attorney general's office has paused its policy of paying for emergency contraceptives for victims of rape and sexual assault. That is where we are in America in the year of our Lord, 2023. And joining me now to discuss all of this is Carrie Sheffield, conservative commentator and fellow with the State Financial Officers Foundation. And in a moment, I'll speak with Dr. Jennifer Via Via Vicencio from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And I will make sure that I get her name right when I do introduce her. Carrie, thank you for being here. It's good to see you. It's been too long. So so let's talk about this. Let's start about something I think we can all agree on. Um, Americans overwhelmingly oppose Judge Kazmarek's ruling. It's 70 to 27 percent opposing the idea of banning the abortion pill. So that's pretty clear. And even if you go across religious groups, we just we have a a chart that I'm going to put up and you can see it. You can go all the way down. White evangelical Protestants um, and essentially the only groups who who are for, who are are largely for um, banning abortion are white evangelical Protestants. Uh, Mormons, Latter-day Saints, um, and people who are Jehovah's Witnesses. But altogether, we're talking about under 15 percent of the population is for banning abortion. So why should this one judge be able to override the desires of 70 percent of Americans? Well, I'd have to look at the wording of that specific poll, but I do know that there is a spectrum of, you know, from zero to nine months you know, how, how people feel about abortion. And I do know that there is a majority of the country that does want some restrictions on abortion. I agree with that. So I think we can both agree on that point. Yes. So, and, and as far as this ruling is concerned, I think if we were to actually explain, and again, it's all about wording when you explain these polls, sure. but from my perspective, and, you know, I just spoke with my friends at ADF who are bringing this lawsuit, you know, what, what are the main reasons why this is happening? And first of all, just to take a step back, this, uh, this drug, you know, the approval was challenged almost immediately out of the gate, mm-hmm. but the FDA refused to respond. And under their own regulations, they're supposed to respond within 180 days. They blew past it. They refused to do that. And so you had almost you know, decades of the FDA refusing to respond. And it's only more recently when you have the, you know, the, the promulgation and just the, the much more common occurrence where that's why this litigation was brought. So just to put that context that the FDA has gone rogue and is refusing to follow its own guidelines. Also, the, the notion that this drug is safe is, is 
there's so much data to say that it's not safe and that the FDA did not follow its own rules. So the FDA, when it went through this process, it categorized pregnancy as an illness similar to HIV AIDS and that the only sort of therapeutic benefit is that this child is killed. That's not a therapeutic benefit to anyone. And pregnancy is not an illness. It's a natural process. So you you have the FDA that's rejecting its own sort of normal process. And then what are the results of it? You have so many studies. So you have one, you know, Journal of OB of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They found that uh, of more than 40,000 abortions in Finland, they found that one in five women had some sort of medical complication from this drug. Uh, there was another study um, in a peer-reviewed study by the Health Services Research and Managerial Epidemiology Journal found um, there was a four times uh, more likelihood of some sort of medical complication from the chemical abortion as opposed to a surgical abortion. So there are lots of safety questions about this, and the FDA did not follow its own rules. And I think also what's also disconcerting is to hear, you know, a congresswoman, AOC, and there's also Senator Ron Wyden saying they want to undermine the rule of law and to say ignore this ruling. I think that's very, very scary. So let, let me go through uh, each of those things. Uh, let's start with the fact that the FDA, um, they're scientists. It is their job. This judge, you would agree with me, is not a scientist. You would agree? Sure. Judge yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he's not a scientist. <laughs> the science behind it, the FDA, I'm sure, has people uh, who come to them with objections uh, to drugs that they are approving. And they may dismiss them because they don't have the science for them, science with them. In the case of Mifepristone, this is the, the actual data and the science. There have been five deaths per one million users since its approval in 2000. It's been legal for, two, for, since, for 23 years. There have been five deaths per one million users. That is a death rate of 0.0005%. Let me give you a comparison. Viagra, 49 deaths per one million users, which is 10 times higher than Mifepristone. There's no lawsuit seeking to take Viagra off the market. Penicillin, which is very, obviously, crucial, right, in treating uh, uh, disease. Um, 20 deaths per 1 million users, which is four times higher than Mifepristone. So this is a, a drug that doctors rely upon, not just for abortions, but also um, for miscarriages. And they are the scientists who are in charge of caring for patients. And the science says that this is safer than Viagra and penicillin. I think it's important to note that the you mentioned deaths, and unfortunately, the FDA changed its own uh, methodology but the, for, you, for you tracking. You don't dispute those numbers. I, I, I haven't looked at those specific numbers. I mean, I, I'm I'm trusting you on the the, the mm-hmm. death numbers. I, I'd have to look at it separately to you know see if I found something different. But I just want to point out though that the FDA changed its own guidelines as far as reporting complications. It used to actually have to report them, and as I understand it now, based on you know what the ADF has has reported. They don't even have to report complications. For, and so that's what's also problematic is that it, it, it minimizes, in some ways, hides the complications here, of it and the risk to the women. Here, here's, my, here's my question, because the science is very clear. Right? The data is clear that this is safer than Viagra and penicillin. But by taking this drug and doing what they're doing, attempting to delete the FDA's approval of it, which has stood for 23 years. Here's what's happening in some states. In Iowa, um, the state of Iowa, which has an abortion ban on the books, has said that women who are raped will no longer be able to get this drug cocktail. They won't be able to do it. Um, You've already had, and and let's just be clear, the anti-abortion, the pro-birth, the forced birth movement, as I call them, they don't want exceptions. They are four women being punished. You've had a 10-year-old rape victim forced to travel from Ohio to Indiana for an abortion. You have a law in Idaho that essentially 
makes it illegal for anyone to help a woman, to be an Uber driver for a woman. Um, you have the bounty law in Texas. What's the end game here? Isn't the end game of this law? Because it's not about making the FDA change its rules. It's about making both abortion and then eventually contraceptive illegal, right? Well, I think I think this particular case is about making the FDA follow its own procedure. And part of why we see, I think, the, the rise in concern is that you have a 500 percent increase in the number of ER visits because of the, the Where, increase in the data? promulgation. Where's your, uh, where's your uh, facts to back that up? That was I mean, something that was cited in the ADF filing of the, of the case. Well, see, uh, I, read but, the, I read through the case yes. and there was a lot of ideological language language there that was sort of trying to present sort of science. And this judge is not a scientist. But what I got from reading that ruling is that this judge would like abortion to be illegal. And he cites the Comstock Act repeatedly. And what the Comstock Act did was make it illegal to even discuss pregnancy or abortion, but also contraception. So is the end game, and this is, I think, really important for people to understand from your, your ideological point of view, is the end game to make both abortion nationally illegal and make contraception nationally illegal. Well, I can't, and I appreciate you having me on and, and having a dialogue. I think we need to have more of these dialogues sure. in this country for sure and lower the temperature a little bit. Um, but I, I mean, I think for, for abortion, I can't speak for this judge. I don't know. I, I you know, he's he's reading the law as it stands. Mm-hmm. He's reading the FDA's policies, which they themselves have ignored what's and your denied. Uh, I, I am a pro-life activist. I do believe personally uh, that uh and again, this is a science thing. You, you, over 90% of scientists agree that immediately at conception, there is a human life. There is the genus and the species. No, I don't think over 90% human... of scientists believe that. And by the and way, there's a human life. Well, historically, that, that, historically, even in the colonial era, in the earliest eras of this country, until the quickening, until a woman could feel uh, a child inside of her, most even religious people, most people in the colonial era, abortion was not illegal until the quickening. And so that is what the Rose standard was. But my question, I think it's really important for people to understand where people who are on your ideological side are coming from. Yeah. Do you want abortion to be illegal in the entire country? Because that is that is going against the views of the vast majority. I would well, say more than 70 to 80 percent of Americans don't want that. Do you want that? Well, scientifically, immediately conception all of the DNA is separate. It's two separate bodies. There's no DNA from the mother that is in the child. But do you want this abortion is, to be illegal? I, just I, really I, I believe in human rights. I, to me, abortion is as evil as slavery. It truly is. And when you look at the founding of Planned Parenthood and who Margaret Sanger was, you look at her research. She was a woman who believed in eugenics. She was a woman who believed in the purification of the race. And she didn't the, want certain women to reproduce. But the I elite, find that legacy to be deeply problematic. Right, but and from, the vast a, from majority, just a scientific standpoint. Right, but the, the vast majority of women are not eugenicists. Uh, most people probably don't even know who Margaret Sanger is. Most women just want control of their own body. So my last question to you, do you think that contraception should be illegal. No, and I, 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 I was very concerned by that the piece that you mentioned where that some people are trying to block access to birth control. And, and I think that I hope this can be a bipartisan area where it, vasectomies, I mean, wh- why aren't we all pushing for that in terms of healthcare coverage for men to get vasectomies and encourage them? And they are thankfully re- reversible in, in the vast majority of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and I'm Protestant. I know that some Catholics disagree with me on the birth control front, but I mm-hmm. think that that's an area if we can focus on termination, then we can have a lot fewer conversations about 
Carrie, uh, sorry, uh, prevention than instead of termination. Okay, well, Carrie Sheffield, thank you for being here. I thank appreciate you. you coming down and being willing. To have, not everyone's willing to do it. <laughs> yeah. so I appreciate you coming and having the thank dialogue. All right, Ray. thank you very much. I now want to bring in Dr. Jennifer Via Vicencio from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Thank you for being here. And first, let me make sure I pronounced your name correctly. That is correct, Via Vicencio. Via Vicencio. Okay, thank you so for let, let me. Yeah. Thank you, of course. I want to go back and just ask if there's anything that you heard in that conversation that you think was not correct. Unfortunately, uh, the majority of what your previous guest said was um, in some way misinformation. Uh, I'm having a hard time coming into this segment after hearing that because there are so many things that I'd like to correct the record on. I think the first and the most important is that there was little if any conversation whatsoever about the individuals, the women, the people and the families that this decision is going to impact. Those are the people that I have spent most of my life training to be an expert, to be a physician scientist, to take care of. My job is to understand the science, is to understand the studies that are being kind of quoted and thrown out there that are being cited in these really biased opinions. And what I can tell you is that they were cherry-picked. So one of the studies that was mentioned by your previous guest was one from Finland, uh, not even in this country. Uh, Another one was from the 1990s and completely ignored the incredible amount of almost, you know, 23 years of data that we have to show that mifepristone is extraordinarily safe, that the complication rates in ER visits are akin to things like, uh, you know, life-saving colonoscopy screening, for example. Very, very similar. Additionally, this idea that scientists agree on when life begins, that's really a philosophical question, not so much a scientific question. And so um, to suggest that that is uh, scientifically uh, sound or, or, or um, founded is untrue and, and really disingenuous. And I would also offer that this idea that mifepristone is, is dangerous is completely incorrect. One in four women in this country will have an abortion by the time that they're 45. And the majority of them will have a medication abortion at this point in time. Medication abortion, which includes mifepristone, allows them to have a safe, private experience within their own home, within the context of their families and their support networks. And I represent the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, which represents over 60,000 OBGYNs across the country. That is thousands and thousands of years of scientific and medical training that is behind mifepristone. And so I don't come at this from an ideological perspective or from a belief perspective. I look at the science, I look at the data, and I look at what my patients need. My patients need access to this care. And what will be the results if, in fact, on Saturday, this Texas ruling um, goes into effect? What will be the pragmatic impact on women? Unfortunately, you know, it's already causing chaos and confusion. Uh, I had a friend text me the on Friday night right after she was still seeing patients at 630. And she said, can I give mifepristone to my, you know, the next patient that I have on my schedule? Doctors are already confused. We we are not scholars of the law. We're scholars of medicine. And so right now it's causing a chilling effect. And certainly if this goes into effect and we're unable to prescribe or offer mifepristone, what that will mean is that thousands and thousands of people across the country will be unable to access the optimal care for both abortion care as well as uh, miscarriage management, which is incredibly common. 
Yeah. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Villavicencio, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. We wanted to make sure that we got a fact check in uh, after the first conversation. So thank you for doing that for us. Up next on the readout, Tennessee Republicans attempt to expel three Democrats has officially backfired with one member reinstated amid growing calls for the speaker's resignation. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today is an important step forward for democracy, but it's not the end. That they tried to, to kill democracy on last Thursday, but today is a testimony of resurrection of people power. We hope we'll continue to show up here in the legislature because Cameron Sexton needs to resign. We need action for common sense gun laws. We need to support these young people who are begging for their lives. And so today is not the end, but it's the beginning. That was newly reinstated Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones calling on his state house speaker, Republican Cameron Sexton, to resign. As Speaker Sexton led the charge in targeting the Tennessee Three and ultimately accused them of breaching decorum by inciting violence tantamount to the January 6th insurrection. Under his leadership, Republicans have ruled with an iron fist, systematically silencing Democrats at every turn. An investigation by the local CBS affiliate in Nashville showed how Republicans introduced legislation in committee, sometimes drastically amended and often kill Democratic bills with a re- without a recorded roll call vote. That is against the rules. But since they have a supermajority, there's nobody to stop them. And it doesn't end there. Yesterday, Judd Legum reported that Speaker Sexton does not live in the district he represents. He actually lives in the Nashville area represented by Democrat Bo Mitchell, nearly 115 miles from his home district. One Tennessee lawyer who litigates law issues told, noted that there were legitimate issues about whether Sexton was a legal representative of his home district at all, but added a key caveat. The legislature is the sole arbiter of any member's qualifications, so it is up to Sexton's colleagues to decide whether he or any representative should be expelled. Now, we know that they have plenty of appetite for policing Democrats, just, you know, none for themselves. According to one scholar's research on democracy, Tennessee is the least democratic state in the U.S. because of its egregious partisan gerrymandering. For example, there is not one single competitive seat in the state Senate. Not one. Democrats are so efficiently packed into a handful of strongly democratic districts that Republicans have a near guaranteed supermajority. And who do they listen to? According to the Young Turks podcast, it is the Koch brothers. State campaign finance data shows that Coke Industries gave at least $21,000 to 27 Tennessee state Republican representatives who voted for expulsion. 
including Speaker Sexton, during the last election cycle. Yesterday, Holly McCall of the Tennessee Lookout told me that many House Republicans felt misled by Speaker Sexton and his quixotic attack on the Democrats. I guess they should just get in line with all the other folks who he seems to be misleading, including the people of his district and the people of Tennessee. Joining me now is Holly McCall, editor-in-chief of the Tennessee Lookout. Um, And thank you for coming back. I I wanted for you to say more um, about this speaker. Um, Has there been any kerfuffle inside of the state about the fact that he does appear to have broken the rules about having to live in the district he represents? Well, first of all, I'm glad to be back, and I'm always happy to run my mouth in front of you and your audience. (laughs) So just in the last week or two, this news has come out about Speaker Cameron Sexton not living in his district. Now, I will point out that there's a bit of gray area. Most lawmakers in Tennessee have an apartment in Nashville if they're, you know, I'd say more than 50 miles outside of the district. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. You can't drive back and forth all the time. People come to Nashville for business outside of the legislative session. So there may be some gray area there. Habitually in campaigns, the specter is raised of whether or not somebody lives in their district, and it never goes anywhere. But here's where Speaker Sexton could run into problems. He's been filing for mileage reimbursements to the tens of thousands of dollars. Now, that, if he's not actually driving back and forth across the state of Tennessee to his purported district, now that's fraud, and that could get him into some trouble. So he might be, we might see an investigation into him for that. Couple that with the fact that you know, his own caucus members see a little blood in the water. And there are at least two guys who are eyeing the speakership. Cameron Sexton wants to run for governor in 2026. He's been trying to appeal to the far right wing of the party. That's probably why he pushed these expulsions so hard. And now, now that his own caucus members see weakness, I would guarantee there are at least two guys who are figuring out how they can pick him off. Let's talk about the undemocratic nature of this state, because this state actually used to have Democratic senators. You know, it wasn't always considered a hard right state. Um, The takeover has been complete, though. Um, And how, you know, sort of durable is that with young Tennesseans literally in the streets and packing into the court, into the state house, um, defying these Republicans? Is there any chance that that ends up changing? So, Joy, I don't think we're going to see a lot of change in the next election, but I think by 10 years down the road, we will see significant uh, significant change. Democrats held the supermajority from after Reconstruction until 2008. So they were in charge for a long time. They became complacent. They became corrupt. It's the nature of a supermajority. But now the Republicans have had a supermajority for almost 15 years, and we're seeing them sliding down that path to corruption, complacency, and arrogance in a far, far quicker time frame. And these young people who are just starting to vote or will vote in a couple of years, you know, they really are kind of like that 60s generation. They have the same ideals of speaking truth to power. They're like those kids who protested Vietnam and corruption and fought for civil rights. And Tennessee, I do believe, is going to be vastly different in 10 years. And we know that Bill Lee now, the governor, um, he has signed an order trying to strengthen background checks. Is that kind of the first sign that Republicans won't be able to maintain this we can do nothing attitude when it comes to gun violence? Well, yes, I think that would not have happened. He's been very anti-gun control or gun safety, and that would not have happened, I don't think, without what happened with the Tennessee Three, not just the mass shooting two weeks ago, because he said nothing for 36 hours after the after that event, nothing. 
and then he did a canned video. So I think this is a result of the Tennessee Three pushing. Uh, but I also noticed today when he had his press conference, there weren't too many other Republicans standing beside him. He was standing <laughs> up there by himself. So Very interesting. He, he's going to have to fight for it. Yeah, very interesting. The politics in Tennessee are now the world's uh, sort of uh, everyone's paying attention to. The whole world is paying attention to Tennessee. We will continue to watch. Holly McCall, come back anytime. Thank you very much. And still ahead, how Republicans made a boogeyman out of George Soros and the implied anti-Semitism and good old fashioned racism behind the Soros backed label. We'll be right back. Summer, the best time of year, usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access, no reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. For the past two decades, there is one person who Republicans have accused of being the grand puppet master behind just about any event or crisis that they want to blame progressives and Democrats for. This person remains the number one boogeyman hiding in all of their closets. And with Donald Trump's indictment in New York, his is the name you've surely heard as the one calling all the shots. Beginning with the radical left, George Soros-backed prosecutor Alvin Bragg of New York. The Manhattan DA funded by George Soros. A left-wing district attorney is Soros-backed district attorney. Soros gives him a million dollars, and so guess what? He becomes the puppet to Soros. They've weaponized the, the, you know, the DA's office there, as they have other Soros-funded DA's offices around the country. He's one of maybe a dozen or more across the country that get elected on an ideological agenda, usually with funding from people like George Soros. Okay. <laughs> the truth is... The right is using the name George Soros to group all of these progressive prosecutors together because the right cannot stand how they are doing their jobs and trying to reform the criminal justice system. Apparently, the system is just not savage enough for them. So the right is doing what it does best, pushing baseless conspiracy theories to rile up their base while also trying to point the finger for Trump's indictment, not on Trump, but on Soros. The 92-year-old Democratic mega-donor and Jewish Holocaust survivor has seen firsthand what authoritarian governments can do to a society. So he has made it his mission to fight those movements and further advance democracy. So yes, he has been willing to put vast amounts of his wealth behind that cause. But the idea that prosecutors or anyone who receives a donation are sources puppets, particularly when those recipients are black— well, that is a pretty blatant throwback to the civil rights era when conservatives, including in the FBI, accused supposed Jewish communists of being the real power behind Dr. King and the civil rights movement. The idea being that black Americans just weren't smart enough or passionate enough about their own freedom to oppose tyranny themselves. 
otherwise contented blacks were being manipulated by the Jews. Meanwhile, to give you a little context that the right always forgets to mention, George Soros, in fact, did not fund Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's campaign. And according to Soros, the two men have never even met. What Soros did was to donate to Color of Change, a nonprofit advocacy group that promotes criminal justice reform, among other racial justice causes. Color of Change has backed a number of progressive district attorney candidates, including supporting Bragg's 2021 campaign. But neither they nor George Soros control Alvin Bragg. Rashad Robinson, who heads Color of Change, has a lot to say on this topic, and he joins me next. Well, George Soros has denied that he controls prosecutors like Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, as Republicans would have you believe. He has spoken out about why he supports progressive prosecutors. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed last year, Soros wrote, quote, in recent years, reform-minded prosecutors and other law enforcement officials around the country have been coalescing around an agenda that promises to be more effective and just. This agenda includes prioritizing the resources of the criminal justice system to protect people against violent crime. It urges that we treat drug addiction as a disease, not a crime, and it seeks to end the criminalization of poverty and mental illness. This agenda, aiming at both safety and justice, is based on common sense and evidence. It is popular. It is effective. Joining me now is Rashad Robinson, president of Color of Change, and Kurt Bardella, democratic strategist and contributor to the Los Angeles Times and USA Today. Um, Rashad, that agenda from George Soros sounds super duper evil, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. treating, you know, poverty as something other than a crime. I would love for you to just talk. I'm going to let you talk about the relationship that Color of Change has with George Soros and why you think that he funds your organization and others. Well, we're funded by many folks around the country who want to support racial justice, who believe in a world where we can advance um, safety um, and justice in communities where we can create more equitable economy, where we can make systems work for everyone, a more human and less hostile world. And that's what we've been fighting for. And George Soros is one of our um, many donors. Um, but these attacks that we that pop up every so often and, and over the last several weeks, um, as uh, Donald Trump has been facing the consequences of his actions, um, actions that um, as he faces them, um, he begins to talk about how the criminal justice system isn't for people like him. Well, the reform-minded prosecutors that we have been supporting around the country have been working to make sure that um, the rich and the powerful actually have to pay the the price when they step outside the law, that we actually have deeper fairness, that communities actually have more power and more um, input in how um, they are sort of treated by the justice system. That is what we're doing. But there are some that believe that jail and prison is only for black and brown people. And, you know, we're happy to have the support of folks. But I've got to say that these attacks over the last several weeks have been really hard on our organization. Donald Trump has named us by name in a, in a post on his own social media platform. And we have had to put resources into security, have had to deal with these attacks. It can also sometimes be a kind of a silent distancing that donors and other people have. Um, and so the thing I also want to say to folks who are watching, who 
actually believe that um, we should have a justice system that is fair and equitable, that people should um, be able to get a fair trial in this country, that the, the playing field needs to be more fair when we think about all of these issues, that they actually have to support reform-minded prosecutors who in so yeah. many places around the country are actually holding the line for our democracy. And if we believe that someone like Donald Trump actually should be accountable and have consequences, then we have to support the people that do it. But we also have to stand with racial justice and civil rights organizations like mine when we come under attack for it. Because yeah. what they're trying to do is make us step further away from the work that we are trying to do every day to fight for a better tomorrow for all of us. Because when black people and black communities win in our country, we make society work for everyone. Yeah, I mean, Kurt, the reality is what they're trying to argue is that Donald Trump facing the same system of justice that anyone else who did what he did faces, that that is the actual discrimination. But that also the other part of their argument, Alvin Bragg needs to be locking up more black people. Right. I mean, that's the undercurrent of their argument. Right. Well, even when you look at the the attacks they use using George Soros as this prop, as this, you know, behind the curtain figure, you're basically also saying that someone like Alvin Bragg can't make his own decisions, right. that he's a puppet master, you know, someone else is controlling his strings, which is inherently a racist type of connotation to say that a black prosecutor can't be trusted because a Jewish donor is controlling him. That is ridiculous. It is both racist and anti-Semitic at the same time. And oh, by the way, let me just point this out. Alvin Bragg isn't flying around on private jets going to private islands with mega donors, you know, the way that Clarence Thomas has been doing. Right. For and years. they would be very offended if we were to say that Clarence Thomas is controlled like a puppet by the guy who was flying him all over the world, maybe influencing his decisions. And I just want to point out, and you've been in both, the, both politics in both parties. There are lots of donors. Yeah. The Shelley Adelson, Peter, Th Peter Thiel, uh, Miriam Adelson, Stephen Wynn. I could go on. The Koch brothers. Oh, yeah. And the right gets real offended if you try to say that that money has influence. But we know in this, you know, mm -hmm. the way that the Supreme Court has allowed things to operate in the Citizens United world, we see that influence. Right. Soros' influence is to make, try to make the world more democratic. Right. Small I mean, D. It's interesting because I don't see Soros playing the same hands-on role that you see from the Koch brothers, from uh, Steve Wynn, who was the finance chair of the Republican, uh, the RNC in the last cycle. I don't see uh, <laughs> George Soros, again, taking Supreme Court justices on private trips and whining and dining them all over the world right. and doing these things that have just come out. It's like, why is there a separate system of ethics yeah. that Republicans want for someone like Alvin Bragg than their own Supreme Court Justice and Clarence Thomas? Yeah. We, we, I don't see them blowing the whistle on the Federal Society and Better how deal. there has been an organized effort to fund right-wing judges right. and put them in office for years now. So, again— Republicans want to have Different their cake rules. and eat it, too. Last word to you, Rashad Robinson. Uh, what can folks do if they want to support what you all are doing? Because I think having progressive prosecutors actually sounds like something most people want. Well, all around the country right now, we are working not only to to push for progressive prosecutors, but then to hold them accountable, to engage with their communities, to do things like court watch. So we support the type of changes that we want to engage. We've also done something like release a, a kind of a platform that's on colorofchange.org, which is a platform about how do we yeah. think about 
investments in our communities beyond policing, a larger vision for public safety. This is yep. all part of the work that needs to happen. And folks can yep. join us at Color of Change and support it. And know that the attacks that we are facing are coordinated because there are people who believe that jail and prison are only for certain yep. people. And there are other yep. folks that get to fly above the law and face no consequences. Yep. And we should and we see it. We see we see what y'all are doing. Uh, Rashad Robinson, Kurt Bardella, thank you both. We're back after this. The Democratic Party has chosen the city of Chicago as the site of next year's national convention. It's a big honor for the city and likely to provide a large boost to its economy. The decision had come down to Chicago or Atlanta, with both cities pitching the importance of Democratic voters in their regions, the Midwest and the South. When it came down to it, Georgia is a lot different than Illinois, with its Republican governor and legislature restricting voting rights, banning gender-affirming care, and passing a six-week ban on abortion that the state Supreme Court is currently considering. The optics of the state are more complicated than the historic, than the historic election of Georgia's two Democratic senators. Contrast that with Illinois, which not only expanded access to abortion, but provided for legal protection for those traveling out of state, passed protections for gender affirming care, as well as a sweeping firearms ban and expanded voting rights. Chicago also just had a huge progressive win in electing Brandon Johnson as mayor. He pitched Chicago as the DNC site directly to President Biden last week. And joining me now is Chicago mayor-elect Brandon Johnson, who takes office next month. Congratulations. I think I spoke to you before the election. So this is my first chance to congratulate you, um, mayor-elect. Um, so take us inside this pitch meeting between you and President Biden. What was your sales pitch? Well, thank you so much. And I'm very excited, of course, to be back on the show. I know we got to get to business. My wife is a huge fan. I'm sorry, Joy. She says hello. If wait, I don't wait, do that, it makes things very mom. complicated. <laughs> so I appreciate no, no, listen, you know, no, my wife is a huge fan. And she's like, yo, you didn't represent well last time. You make sure you tell that sister I said hello. But, Thank you know, you. In, in my conversation, you know, with the president, it was obviously very humbling for, for me and my family. But I made it very clear and pretty straightforward. You know, look, the city of Chicago has been, you know, a marker. Uh, for a generation now of what is possible for the entire country. Remember when Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. came to the city of Chicago, um, you know, 50 plus years ago, um, he was met with tremendous opposition and he could have left discouraged. But what he said was, if we can figure it out in Chicago, we can do it anywhere in the world. And I, you know, essentially pitched to the president that the labor rights movement and the civil rights movement that Reverend Martin Luther King talked about um, often um, that it had finally converged and we are the manifestation of that hope. And I just said, what better place to mark um, a place where our values are front and center than the city of Chicago? And uh, clearly he uh, heard that message loud and clear. And what will the convention do for the city? You know, well, it's certainly a remarkable testament to laying out our values, right? And that we don't have to skirt away um, from our democratic values, right? That these false choices, uh, be, particularly around public safety, that we don't have to limit our conversations around Republican talking points. We can get at the root causes of violence in the city of Chicago and it be a mark for the rest of the country, you know, and um, you know, many of our communities have been disinvested in joy. You know, I live in Austin on the west side of Chicago. It's a beautiful community, uh, but it has been a neighborhood that has been disinvested in. And so we are estimating conservatively anywhere from 
$150 million to $200 million um, that will be infused into our economy. And so, of course, I'm going to work hard to make sure that those neighborhoods that have experienced drought for a generation, that we you know, reroute the river, if you will, to make sure that there is a real flow of investment to those communities, because that's ultimately what's going to help transform our neighborhoods. And are you all prepared? Are you prepared for what will be? You mentioned the Republican talking points because Chicago is their favorite talking point. They can't talk about gun violence or anything else without talking about Chicago. Are you prepared for what they're going to dish out? Well, absolutely, because, look, you know, my candidacy has certainly united people. It's been a multicultural intergenerational movement um, that captured the excitement of young people and even those in my father's generation. Right. So I literally had my younger brothers and sisters and cousins and our grandparents voting for me. And so that type of unity that we are bringing and what the governor of Illinois has done, what the United States Senator Tammy Duckworth um, has done um, and what the business community has set forth that it's been a collective effort and we're prepared not just to unite the city, but as you know, the Midwest has been yeah. described as this blue wall, if you will. So I believe it's going to be impactful for the region as well. My, I know people are going to be mad at me if I don't ask, are the Obamas coming? Did, 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 have you got confirmation from Barack and Michelle Obama? Cause you know, that's what people want to know. <laughs> oh, of, of course. So look, you know, I, I make history the first teacher ever elected to the fifth floor of the city of Chicago. And my family wants to know what my conversation with president Obama was like. I'm like, <laughs> at, I'm like, at some point, you know, brother got to have a little bit of respect, you know, can somebody actually show some interest in me? You know, I didn't win. <laughs> But I did have a really great conversation with the president. And he said, look, you know, um, he's available. You know, he and Michelle, the first lady. And we talked a lot about, you know, what it means to be a black executive and, of course, what it means to raise a family. And so I'm looking forward to the Obamas hanging out with us in the city of Chicago. And hopefully, you know, he shares some of that spotlight with the brother on the fifth floor. (laughs) And listen, you made history. You kept the Chicago, uh, the seat, the greatest mayoralty, a lot of people would argue, other than NYC, uh, in the hands uh, of an African-American candidate. So congratulations again. And uh, we'll see you at the convention. Chicago Mayor-elect Brandon. And of course, look, you got to meet my wife, okay? Like, because this doesn't matter if you don't get a chance to meet oh, my I'm wife. I'm coming so to dinner. Let's make sure we do that. Okay. I'll be at sure. your house. Oh, yeah, I'm going to come to dinner. No, <laughs> I invited myself. I just invited myself. Thank you, Chicago, like, Chicago Mayor like Brandon Johnson and his wife. We'll see you all there. Thank you. That's tonight's readout. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to do list teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.